Okay, good evening, everybody. Um, thank you for coming. Um, and uh, this should be a very exciting evening ahead of us. Uh, very, very proud indeed uh, to be welcoming uh, 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 Luc- Lucas Chancel from the World Inequality Lab, one of the co-directors of the, of the World Inequality Lab, to be launching uh, this very important uh, r- report, um, which is, which is uh, as we'll see, uh, tracking the rise in global economic inequality. Um, and... Uh, as you all know, the World Inequality Lab has been leading the way over recent years in charting inequality across, across the world, um, increasingly spreading its reach out from North America and Europe into all parts of the world. Incredibly impressive, incredibly important work, which is transforming the way we think about inequality and giving us a genuinely global perspective. Um, so it's very exciting to, to welcome Lucas here tonight. Um, the plan is, to, is for him to speak for 40 minutes or so, um, and uh, as you will see, uh, there is this fantastic book, uh, which I believe is available outside afterwards, um, uh, uh, out fresh, fresh off, the, um, off the plane or the train. Uh, so please, please do afterwards uh, purchase a copy if you, if you are so inclined. He will speak for 40 minutes, and then we're going to have a discussion with three discussants. Um, firstly, Rebecca Simpson. Uh, Rebecca is currently junior research fellow at the Institute of Historical Research. She's an economic historian who's worked particularly on African inequality, and she's also been carrying out some research in the International Inequality Institute on global trends in inequality. And she will share her insights uh, partly from that project and her reflections on uh, uh, Lucas's uh, presentation. Then we're going to move on to Paul Siegel, who is a senior lecturer in economics at King's College London, He's also doing some work in the International Inequalities Institute and is a, he's an economist of global inequality and has done some very important work charting uh, global inequality trends. Uh, and last but not least, we have Duncan Green, who is Senior Strategic Advisor at Oxfam and he's also <coughs> Professor in Practice in the International Development Department here at the LSE. Uh, and he'll be giving his perspective. So uh, they will speak for, for six, seven minutes each. Um, we, therefore, will have about half an hour at the end for your questions from the floor and a chance to, to discuss. So um, let me just say a few words about, about Lucas. Um, he has an amazing background, uh, trained as an engineer, economist, uh, lots of things, several master's degrees. Um, but his, uh, his particular expertise is on the relationship between inequality and environmental issues. Um, and he is currently uh, co-director of the World Inequality Lab um, and senior research fellow at... at um, Institute for Sustainable Development and International Relations, and he lectures at Sciences Po in Paris. So let me invite him to come over. Thank you very much, Mike, for uh, the introduction. Thank you for uh, the invitation. I'm, I'm really thrilled to, to be here today. Actually, it's, uh, it's really the, the first time I see the book in, in its printed form, so, so I'm, I'm really delighted uh, to, uh, to be able to, uh, to present this on the occasion of, of the launch of the book uh, version of the report, which was released uh, a few months ago uh, in its online form, and, and now it's, uh, it's great to, to be able to, to have it as a, as a physical object. So, so I have about uh, 40 minutes, so let me just count the time here, thank you. So basically this, um, this presentation will be about the, I, I will follow the, the general structure of, of the report and let me introduce uh, this, this talk by saying that this really is a collective work. So 
you see here that the report is coordinated by Facundo Alvarado, myself, Thomas Piketty, Emmanuel Says, Gabriel Zuckman. But it, it really draws uh, on the work of uh, dozens and dozens of scholars all over the world, literally 100 researchers across all continents. So this really is a collaborative, uh, cumulative work, and it's an ongoing process. So a lot of the series that are presented in the report are being uh, continued, updated, and we're, as we speak, uh, feeding the database that underlies the report with new countries. So inequality is indeed one of the key challenges of our, of our time, and, and we believe that if it's not properly addressed, it can lead to various sorts of political, social, economic catastrophes. But one of the first condition to uh, to uh, one of the first conditions to properly tackle inequality is to monitor it properly. And let's say it at, at the onset: we're still very far from having satisfactory measures of global income and wealth inequality. And this report tries to uh, make a step forward in this direction, but we're still far from uh, the uh, optimal point. So. Uh, we already think that there are uh, interesting, useful, novel results from the work that we have been over the past years, and this is what I'm going to present uh, now. So, uh, as I said, uh, we see WidWorld, the, the database underlying the report, as the most extensive database on, on the historical evolution of income and wealth, and this project regroups researchers over uh, the five continents. One of the most important uh, aspects of our work, in our perspective, is really the transparency dimension. That is, all the uh, series that, you, that we discussed uh, can be accessed online with all the data sets, computer codes, technical papers that underlie this work, so that everybody, researchers, non-researchers, can actually make their own mind on our series, can reproduce them if they want, and we also have tools to visualize inequality uh, that are available, open access, and free on our website. So this is really one of the core dimensions of our project, opening uh, economic research to uh, the general public and to everybody. And um, one of the main findings, one of the main results uh, that I will discuss in the coming minutes is that uh, we find that despite high growth in emerging countries since 1980, we find rising global inequality among world individuals. And we, we find that the top 1% uh, income earners actually captured twice as much growth as the entire bottom 50% of the world population since uh, 1950. Now, the the conclusion of this report is really not about pessimism uh, in the face of these inequality trends that we observe since the 1980s. And we really stress the importance of country-by-country -country analysis. We really stress the importance of looking at the diverging trends that we observe between countries because these diverging trends really show, really reveal the importance of policy choices or lack of policy choices to tackle inequality over the past 40 years. And this really suggests that much can be done, both in the rich world and in the emerging world, to uh, actually do better growth rates for the bottom 50% or the bottom 90% of the population without skyrocketing inequality, as was found, as was observed in some countries over the past uh, decades. 
So the presentation will be structured as follows. A first quick introduction on the Woodworld project, where we come from, why uh, did we launch this project on first top income measurement, and now not only looking at top incomes, but also at the bottom 99% of the population. Second, I will look at global income inequality dynamics. Then chapter three and four, section three and four will be about capital inequality. And we start with income, then we move toward, uh, towards capital uh, inequality, wealth inequality between the public uh, sector and the private sector, but also among individuals in the country. I will make this distinction uh, in, in sections three and, and four. And then I will move on to, to the fifth point, so tackling inequality and looking at uh, very simple, yet in our sense, use, useful projections about uh, the future. So, so part one, uh, I've, I've already said that, so let's uh, st straight, uh, straight away look at where we come from. So this work actually is the continu continuation of a, of a pioneering work of, of Simon Kuznets, initiated in the 1950s. So Simon Kuznets, as you all know, one of the inventors of GDP, was also very much interested in uh, how GDP is, how national income is distributed across the population, except one a stream of his work was taken over by national statisticians, by official statistical institutions, so that's the macro aggregates parts, how we measure national income. But the part on the distribution of income uh, has, has so far not been taken over by national offici official statistical accountants. So a few researchers over the second half of the 20th century took over this job carried on, continued using the pioneering uh, methodologies uh, led forward by, by Kuznets. And this includes indeed uh, the late Tony Atkinson, uh, to whom the, this report is actually dedicated, as he uh, was one of the uh, co-founders of the World Top Income Database. He was there initially when we discussed the, the first uh, architecture of this, uh, of this report. So Tony Atkinson with Alan Harrison continued the work of, uh, of, of Kuznets in, in uh, 1978, looking at the distribution of wealth in the UK. And then Thomas Piketty comes in in the early 2000s, looking at long-run income and wealth inequality series in France. Emmanuel Saez uh, joins with Thomas uh, Piketty to work on the US uh, income inequality series. Then Facundo Alvarado comes in. And in 2011, uh, essentially thanks to, to, the, to the, 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 the impetus of Facundo Alvarado, we, we produce this world top income database. And the idea is to bring all this research, all this data online, open access, so that it can really feed public debates. And, uh, and indeed, the, the, the Capital in the 21st Century uh, by Thomas Piketty draws a lot from, from, from this uh, database. Now, um, since 2011, there were several extensions which, uh, which are presented actually for the first time in, in this report. In the sense that some criticisms that have been uh, made uh, on, on the database and on the Capital in, in the 21st Century were, were the following. First, what about the bottom 99% of the population? Why is there so much focus on the top one? What is happening at the bottom? One of the reasons for that was uh, that data, fiscal data, was uh, enabling us to, tr to track inequality at the top. 
But in order to look at the bottom, other types of uh, sources of data needs to be mobilized. And this is what we have been doing over the past five, five years. This, one of the second large criticism that we took into account over the past years is the lack of emerging and developing countries in the analysis. And again, this is also related to the fact that well, tax data was more easily available in the, in the rich world to start with. But thanks to uh, also thanks to the success of the, of the book of Thomas Piketty, this led uh, some uh, civil right movement, civil society movement, some journalists in, emerging, in the emerging world to actually pre- put pressure on their governments to release tax data. This was the case in India, in Brazil, in some African countries, and tax data was released. And so we are using this tax data for the first time, some of this tax data for the first time in the World uh, Inequality Report. And third, uh, the third uh, extension underway is not only to look at income, but also wealth distribution, and I will discuss this a bit in the, in the coming slides. So this is just to say that uh, the, the website is, uh, is open access and is available in, in four languages. And if you're an inequality, inequality researcher, a journalist, or just someone interested in these uh, issues, you can find a lot of tools to, uh, to visualize the data, to manipulate it, and this is really complementary to, uh, to the book, to the report that, that we've presented uh, before. And this is just a snapshot of the, of the website. So as soon as we move away from just looking at the top 1%, but we also look at the bottom 99% of the population, as soon as we do not only have information on rich countries, but also emerging countries, we're confident enough to produce global income inequality estimates. This is what I will present in uh, the second part of the presentation with three uh, takeaways. So the first one is that the top 1% captured a very important share of global growth since 1980. So this was substantial, twice as much as the bottom 50%. The second takeaway is that there indeed has been strong uh, between-country convergence since 1980. The rise of China, the rise of India, reduced disparities uh, in average income uh, levels between the rich world and the emerging world. However, there has also been a very strong rise of inequality, income inequality within countries, and the combination of these two forces overall led to an increase in global inequality since uh, 1980. There's a strong reduction, uh, there's a small reduction since, uh, of global inequality since 2007, but I will come back to, to, to this uh, in the final stage of the presentation, basically showing that if current trends are prolonged, this uh, reduction of global inequality may actually not, not last. And business as usual will be a continuation of the rise of uh, global inequality among individuals. But third, third point, we need to look at national trajectories. We need to look at divergences between uh, what is happening in the USA, in Europe, in China, or in India. This is what I will do in, in the coming slides. But before I do this, just one point. Uh, why we do all this? Why we use tax data? Well, because official inequality data still relies essentially on survey data. And survey data is just like putting uh, lenses that actually blur uh, uh, where the action takes place. The action takes place 
over the past 30 years, 40 years in terms of inequality, largely at the top of the distribution. And survey data is well known to, to, to misrepresent what is happening at the top of the distribution. So unfortunately, the official data that is published out there by official institutions uh, is, doesn't really help us to track income and wealth inequality properly. So this is why we combine this data with national accounts, with tax data, which is, which is much more precise at the top of the distribution. And so uh, we follow a step-by-step -step approach towards a consistent distribution of income and wealth. As I said, we're confident with our findings for income, which I will present here. For wealth, so far, wealth inequality so far, we cannot produce fully global estimates. So I will not discuss this today, and you will see in the report that we do not, not have fully uh, global wealth inequality estimates because we feel this is too early, actually, to produce uh, such estimates. And so the main finding is that we confirm and amplify the elephant curve pattern that many of you know, so the Lackner and Milanovic finding. So here we do this with more systematic use of tax data and, and national accounts. So basically, the growth rates that we have here really correspond to the growth rates that we hear in public debates. Whereas when we use only survey data, uh, the, the, the growth rates uh, that, that come out of such analysis do not correspond to uh, what is uh, discussed in, in public debates. So this is brilliant. All right. So uh, let's start with uh, the building bricks of our global income distribution. Uh, so we have here Europe, China, Russia, U.S., Canada, Sub-Saharan Africa, Brazil, India, and the Middle East. Here ranked with one simple uh, in inequality indicator. So that's the share of the top 10 percent in uh, total uh, income in all of these countries or regions. In 2016, and we see that Europe is on the left here with the top 10% capturing 37% of total income. So in a perfectly unequal world, this would be 100%. In a perfectly equal world, this would be 10%. The Middle East is on the right-hand side of the graph with the highest level for the top 10% share, 61%. And then we have a variety of situations from China, 41%. U.S., Canada, 47%, or India, 55%. So that's the picture today. The question is, where do, we, where do we come from? So this graph shows you the evolution over time since 1980. For the same indicator, top 10% income share, uh, for uh, these uh, five regions. And let's focus on two extreme cases. Let's look at Russia, for instance. That's the purple line on the graph which is the most equal country in the subset in 1919, and which in just a, a very small period of time, just five years, becomes the most unequal country in this, in this subset. So this really shows the very brutal shift uh, from high, uh, highly regulated economy uh, under socialism in the 1990s to uh, the post-Soviet period. A much more gradual evolution of inequality can be found in Europe with much more moderate Increase, increased, and it is interesting if we compare U.S. Canada with, with Europe here again. Very broadly similar levels of inequality, income inequality in 1980, and the situation in 2016 is uh, very different. Now if we take one step backward, and if we replace 1980 in a broader historical perspective, then we observe that this point, 1980, comes at the end of a period of 
strong reduction of income and wealth inequality in all these regions. This strong reduction occurred because of very different uh, socio-political regimes, so whether mixed economy in uh, Europe and in the uh, USA, communism, socialism in uh, China and Russia, highly regulated economy in India, but in all these cases we have a strong compression of the income distribution. From the 1980s onwards, there's a rise again. So the question which comes now is, where are we going to? Where is this leading up to? One way to, to assess, to discuss this, uh, this, uh, this point is to add three regions on these graphs. They appear at the top of the graph, so that's the Middle East, Brazil, Sub-Saharan Africa. So these are three regions which arguably never went through this period of compression of income and wealth distribution in the 50s to the uh, 1980s. We, unfortunately, so far, we don't have as detailed data for these three regions before the 1990s onwards. We are currently building this data, producing, harmonizing this data, which will, will be available hopefully in a, in a few months. But it seems that these regions have always had a very high, we call it here, we call it here an extreme level of inequality, we use this term of inequality frontier because perhaps the levels of uh, income inequality are so high that it is pretty difficult to actually generate income distributions that are more unequal than what is found in these regions. And are uh, the other regions which experience compression of income inequality converging towards uh, these three high inequality regions? This is a question which uh, I will come back towards uh, the end of this presentation, but first... Let's look at what happened since 1980 at the level of the world. So basically, let's uh, erase national boundaries. Let's look at the world as one single country, and let's look at how income inequality increased or evolved um, in this uh, country. That is uh, the world. So this is what we do here. So we we saw the world population, the entire world population. We split it in 100 groups of equal size. We sort the poorest on the left, the richest on the right, and for each of these groups, we plot the total income growth rates since 1980, so from 1980 to 2016, so this is net of inflation. And what do we see? We see strong, substantial growth rates at the bottom of the distribution. So this is the rise of China, this is the rise of India, with growth rates over 100%. And it's around 100% on average for the bottom 50%. If we move on to the right-hand side of the global distribution, we see much lower growth rates, lower than 50%. Actually, um, in countries like the USA, for the bottom 50% of the population, growth rates are actually close to zero. I will discuss this in in a few minutes. So this is the squeeze bottom 90% in the US and in Western Europe. And now if we move on to the very top of the distribution, the global top 1%, growth rates are higher than 200%. But now some people may may react in in the following way. One may say, well, actually, these growth rates are very high, but uh, this is just 1% of the global population. So this doesn't necessarily mean much from a macroeconomic perspective. So in order to answer this, this question, we, we proceed in the following way. I will reproduce the exact same graph, except instead of uh, scaling people uh, with uh, a length on the axis, on the horizontal axis, that is proportional to their population share, 
I will sort them with a uh, length that is proportional to the share of growth, the total share of growth they captured since 1980. So basically, the top 1% of the global population here is just one dot, just one point. On the second graph, the top 1%, so all individuals on the right-hand side of my point 99 over there, well, they occupy 27% of the axis because they actually captured, as a group, 27% of total growth since 1980. So you see how the graph is modified, how the bottom 50% is shifted to the left of the distribution because the bottom 50%, well, it only captured 12% of total growth. So this is an answer to the question that was just raised. Did the top 1% capture an important share of total growth? Well, yes, this mattered a lot from a macroeconomic uh, point of view. But actually, this, the, the, the representation, the graphical representation, which uh, I just showed, actually completely squeezes to the left half of the world population. So we prefer to have a kind of um, a mixed representation here, where we give ample space to the bottom 50%, so we can see what is happening in there, but we stretched, we stretched to the right uh, the top 1%, to give it more space to see what is happening within this uh, top 1%. And we're back on this, uh, elephant, uh, on this elephant graph. So, one may ask another uh, essential question here, is, uh, which is the following. Are we sure that the enormous rise of the uh, global top 1% was actually necessary for the growth of the bottom 50% of the world's uh, population? And the answer here is, uh, well, not really. Uh, because if we have a careful country analysis of... Uh, growth trajectories and inequality trajectories, well, we find that countries which had higher inequality were not necessarily countries which had higher growth at the bottom. In fact, quite the, the contrary. The extreme counter uh, example to this claim that you need high growth at the top, so high inequality to lift the bottom, is the USA, where you basically have a near stagnation of the bottom 50% of the population in, in, in terms of their income levels, and very high growth at the top. And if you compare this to Europe, you see much lower rise in inequality in Europe, but higher growth among the bottom 50% of the population. So this is what I will do uh, now. I will compare US versus Europe and India versus China. So here we have two indicators for inequality. In red, the share of total income accruing to uh, the top 1% of the population. And in blue, the share of total income accruing to the bottom 50% of the population, U.S. on the left and Western Europe on the right. On the right. So what you see in the U.S. Is, is really this inversion of the relative shares of the bottom 50% and of the top 10% in national income, with the top 1% in the U.S. capturing about 10% of total income in 1980 and about 20% today. And this is the symmetry of what happened to the bottom 50%. So basically, this was uh, able to happen because of the stagnation uh, of incomes at the bottom 50%, as I just uh, discussed. In Western Europe, we see a rise in inequality, in inequality but, but much, uh, much lower, as, as you can see on, on this graph. Now, if we compare two, uh, two regions, uh, India and China, so two emerging countries, we see... Uh, a, 
a similar general conclusion. That is, um, rise at, among the bottom 50% of the population was much stronger in China than in India, four times faster for the bottom 50% of the population, which grew at 400% since 1980 in China and 100% growth uh, in India since 1980. <coughs> that being said, China was able to moderate the rise of inequality from the mid 2000 onwards, whereas we see a relatively progressive, strong, constant rise of inequality in, uh, in India. Sorry for that. So what is also interesting in, in this comparison is that um, the US and the EU have similar levels of development, similar size, similar exposure to globalization and to new technologies since the 1980s, but they have radically diverging trajectories. So this highlights the importance uh, not of mechanic, mechanistic drivers of inequalities, uh, like it is often said that technology is uh, one of the key drivers, drivers of the rise of inequality, or that globalization is one of the key drivers of the rise of inequality. Well, here this really stresses the importance of fiscal policies, of access to education policies, of uh, labor market regulation policies, rather than technology or rather than uh, opening to trade uh, per se. And again, a similar uh, conclusion can be drawn from the comparison between China and India. You have countries that are broadly similar in terms of size. Of course, they have very different political uh, regime. But what we see here is that uh, it is really the uh, more important investments in education, in health, in infrastructure for uh, rural areas that, uh, that really contributed to lift uh, the bottom 50% in China and that explain the diverging trends in terms of income inequality that we observe in these two, in these two countries. Just one side note here. In 2015, all countries agreed to uh, meet the sustainable development goals so basically, the bottom 40% has to grow faster than the average. Here we were discussing about the bottom 50%, but the message is the same for the bottom 40%. That is, none of these countries or regions were able to meet this target over the period considered. So we've discussed income inequality, but there is a, an essential dimension of inequality which is often overlooked, and this is uh, this basic distinction between private capital and public capital. So questions of public debt or private debt are often debated uh, in, in uh, the media, in public debate, perhaps sometimes uh, with one side of the, of the discussion which is missing, that is, uh, private debt or public debt is not detained by planet Mars, basically. It is humans that detain public debt or private debt, or at least some individuals. And uh, so basically we really need to connect macroeconomic questions on private debt, public debt, with microeconomic analysis on the distribution of wealth. And this is really what we try to do in this report, to connect macro questions with micro and distributional analysis questions. So this is what I will do in, in, these, uh, in the part three and part four of, of this presentation, and that this is what we do in, in the report. So just one point of clarification here. What is 
national capital or national wealth? Well, this is the sum of private capital and public, capi and public capital. So what is public capital? Well, public capital is the sum, again, of uh, physical assets detained by governments, like uh, roads, like hospitals, financial assets owned by governments, stocks, bonds, minus debts that governments have. <clears throat> and private capital is the same for uh, the private sector. So here what we're going to look at is how, uh, how we observe shifts between public capital and private capital in uh, a large set of countries since the 1980s. And we see large transfers of public capital to private capital, both in the rich world and in the emerging world. And we see a strong decline in public capital, which re reaches really, really low values, as I will discuss in, uh, in, a few, in a few slides. Why is this important? Well, the rise of private capital is not in itself problematic, but it raises new issues in terms of the role of inheritance, in terms of the, the types of fiscal policies that, that should be implemented. And on the reverse side, the decline of public capital really, really raises new issues for governments. So how can governments invest in, uh, uh, in education, invest in necessary ecological transition investments when public capital reaches, uh, reaches values that are close to, to zero. So there really is a, is, a, is a challenge here that we discuss in, in this third part of the report. So let's look at this uh, first set of spaghettis. So basically on the, top, uh, on the top part of the graph you have the evolution of private capital. And what you see here basically for, uh, for the UK in, uh, in, in, our, in, in, our, in orange a value of 300 uh, basically means on this graph that in 1970, the stock of private capital in the UK is around 300% of national income. So that is about three years of national income in stock of private capital. And this uh, rises to about 600% today. And more or less, this is the same evolution in all these uh, countries. This evolution is actually unaffected by, as you can see here, by the financial crisis. You see a blip during the financial crisis, but then the trend uh, continues to, to rise again. And this evolution is, is this long-term evolution, again, doesn't seem to be really much affected by uh, uh, bubbles, asset price bubbles that, that you observe that are uh, clearly evident here in Japan and, and in Spain. So this is really a long-term uh, strong, strong trend. Now, the, the reverse side of, of the picture is, is uh, the decline in the value of public capital over the period, uh, which moves from about 70% of national income to near 0% of national income, and even below 0% in some countries. So what does below 0% mean in a country like the UK? This means that if uh, the government in the UK wanted to sell all its assets, all its roads, all its hospitals, uh, all its bonds, uh, all the financial capital that it detains to repay its debt, it wouldn't even be able to repay them. And then British citizens would have to pay a rent to the new owners of uh, all the roads, all the, all the infrastructure of, uh, of the country. So let's, let's look at the same, at the same uh, data, but expressed in, in, uh, in a slightly different way. So here, what we do is we express the value of public capital as a share of total capital. 
So by definition, what you see uh, up there, uh, the, the Chinese uh, red line, 70% means that in 1978, when China opened, opens up its, uh, starts to open, to open up its economy, to deregulate, 70% of total capital, total wealth, is public. And in 2016, 30% of total wealth is public. That is, 70% is now uh, private. So what happens in the... In the rich world, we move basically more or less from 30%, so more or less the, the value of China today, that's the value that uh, rich countries had in the 1980s, to zero or below zero today. So, again, the, the point here is not to say that 30% is an optimal value for uh, the share of public capital in total wealth in an economy, but clearly zero or below zero is, is really, really low. That's, uh, that's, one of the, that's one of the key, key messages that, that we discuss in the, in the report. Now, it is also, again, always interesting to look at exceptions. And uh, in a country like Norway, public capital doesn't decline but rises. So, indeed, this is due to uh, subsoil assets, to oil that uh, Norway has, And uh, the government has been successful in actually uh, using these, these assets to increase the value of, uh, of its public capital. But uh, this could have been done differently. The UK also had an important stock of uh, subsoil assets w which were not necessarily used to actually moderate, at least moderate, the decline of uh, public capital in the UK. So this also indeed relates to different strategies uh, carried out by, by countries with what they do with, uh, with their stock of capital. And indeed, Russia follows a similar evolution as China, whereas it also had and still has important uh, subsoil assets. So, so we've discussed here uh, very rapidly uh, the evolution of the dynamics between public capital and, and private capital. We showed that this decrease of uh, public capital is due to two, two things, the rise of public debt, but also large transfers of public capital to private capital. And what we, what we discuss in the fourth part of the report is that the combination of these large transfers of public capital to private capital that I just discussed and the strong rise of income inequality in some countries that was discussed in the previous uh, section contributed to a strong rise of wealth inequality among individuals since 1980, at least in Russia, US, China. We see a more moderate evolution of wealth inequality in France and the UK, and I will uh, discuss this briefly. But just one note here, wealth data remains particularly opaque around the globe. This relates to the first point I made in the introduction, that so far we're not able to produce a fully harmonized global distribution of wealth. More work will be uh, needed in the months and, and years to come to be able to perform this. So let's look at this uh, evolution now from a very long-term uh, perspective. We start at the beginning of the 20th century, and we see here the very strong, massive uh, reduction in wealth inequality, here measured with the top 1% personal wealth share uh, in emerging countries and, and rich countries. And, and what we see is... Uh, is uh, that, well, today we're still clearly not back to uh, the level of wealth inequality that we observed in uh, the early 20th century. However, 
Some countries show a very strong increase since uh, the, the, the mid-1970s, uh, like, like the U.S., also very strong and abrupt rise in wealth inequality among individuals in a country like Russia, where, well, this, these public assets were actually transferred to the private sector, but not equally distributed among uh, the private sector. Uh, uh, a very uh, small fraction of individuals were able, actually, to, to capture this, uh, this privatized uh, wealth. And what you also see here is uh, a more moderate evolution of wealth inequality in, in, in France and in the UK. And here we stress the, the, the moderating, the tempering impact of housing prices uh, and, 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 and uh, housing wealth evolutions. Basically, the middle class has a lot of housing wealth and access, so the, the, the expansion of uh, access to, 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 to housing uh, actually contributed in, uh, in the UK, in, uh, in, in France, to moderate the rise of, uh, of wealth uh, inequality. Just a few words on, on the UK before I, I move on to the final section and, and before I conclude. Please tell me on t how we're doing on time. Five minutes. Five minutes, perfect. So this is this is the the picture for the UK from uh, from 1895 to 2013, and what we see is that the the rise uh, in wealth inequality in the UK since the since the uh, early uh, 90s or the mid 90s is largely a top 0.1% phenomenon. So it's it's really at the very top of the top of the wealth distribution that, that we see a, a, a rise of, a, 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 of inequality. So what, what happened in the UK? Well, basically, uh, in 1818, 70% uh, of the housing stock uh, was detained by, by private uh, landlords. And, and, uh, and in uh, 1980, it's only 10%. But, but since the 1980s, we see a... Uh, a return of uh, of private landlords who now represent 20% of the of the housing stock. So basically, uh, housing wealth dynamics contributed to the reduction of wealth inequality in the UK, to the moderation of wealth inequality from the 1980s to the early uh, 1990s. But with the buy to let, with programs such as the buy to let program. Uh, with the, we see the return of private landlords and wealth, uh, housing wealth inequality now will not necessarily act as much as a moderator of rising wealth inequality trend as it did in the previous uh, 20 years in the UK. So this uh, is discussed in much more detail at the country level in the report where in order to understand really the underlying drivers of these dynamics, we, we need to look at inequality in savings rates across different groups of the population, difference, uh, differences in portfolio compositions, and this is what uh, we do, uh, what we discuss for, for a, a set of countries. But now since I have this very long-term span, uh, on this graph, this, this links up to uh, what we do in the very final part of the report, that is projections. So just, just two graphs here uh, that I will present. And before that, uh, one point on the, the future of income or wealth inequality. So basically, as uh, George Box used to say, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So the models that I'm going to present are wrong by definition, but can help us to understand which of the two key drivers that govern uh, 
global income inequality dynamics, which of the, these two key drivers will, uh, will, um, will dominate in the coming decades? Is it the uh, rising inequality or the evolution of inequality within countries? Or is it the convergence that we have seen and that we will continue to see between countries that will dominate? Without these projections, it's very hard to know what is going to happen. And we still, of course, don't know what is going to happen, but these, uh, these projections that I will show can help us have an idea of uh, potential trajectories. What we find here is that under business as usual, that is, if all countries continue to distribute growth, income growth, in the same way as they did since 1980, but if we assume that Africa, Latin America, Asia will continue to converge towards uh, the rich world, and if we assume strong growth, if we're actually relatively optimistic on the growth in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, well, even if we're optimistic with this growth, and the business as usual, global income inequality will continue to rise. This is what you see on this graph where you have the evolution of the top 1% income share from 1980 to 2016 in red. We see an evolution from about 16% to about 20%. And now the, the continuation of the, of the red curve here is the business as usual scenario, where you, where you see this, this further increase of global inequality, even if there is a continuation of the catch-up in China, but also higher growth in Africa, higher growth in Latin America. Now, what we want to show with these projections is that, indeed, different trajectories, many different trajectories are possible. Here we just assume two alternatives. What happens if all countries follow the U.S. trajectory? That is, if all countries distribute growth in the coming, uh, in the coming three decades in the same way as the U.S. did over the past three decades. Well, then you have the blue line. You have top 1% global income share rising to 27% of uh, world income. But conversely, if all countries follow uh, the EU trajectory, and we can be even more optimistic, countries can follow even more, uh, even, even, more, uh, even fairer uh, trajectories, then in that case, we would see a small reduction in the global top 1% income share. And the final message in this presentation will be that, of course, these different inequality trajectories matter enormously uh, for global poverty eradication. So here you have the average annual income level per adult of the global bottom 50% across the different scenarios. And you see this factor two difference between the US scenario and the EU scenario. So indeed, how you distribute growth in each country has a strong impact on global poverty. And this is, you know, fields of literature and also of the policy discussions which have been separated for a long time, the poverty debate and the inequality debate, which are, being, uh, which are, which are now more and more being uh, discussed uh, together and, and we feel that this is indeed extremely, extremely important. And I will conclude here. I will keep the, the rest of the slides potentially for the discussion or not, but you can find them in the, in the reports, in the book or, or, or online. But the aim of the report is really not to close the discussion. Again, we, the point is not to make everybody agree on an optimal level of inequality or on the optimal set of policy tools to reach this level. We really aim here to put on the table the key facts, the key figures for everybody 
to, uh, to actually have a voice in this debate. And in the report, we discuss the role of progressive taxation, of how to fight uh, tax evasion, the role of equal access to education, policies that can be implemented to foster this, and how to uh, address uh, the issue of public debt. So I will stop here and uh, just up skip that and recap the, the, the main message of, of this report here that again is a really collective and cumulative work but the ma main message is that rising inequality is not inevitable and uh, we've shown that different types of, of policies have been implemented in the past and they had different impacts at the national level. This can also be done in the future. We can do much better to promote more equitable growth pathways in the coming decades, and we very much hope that this debate, along with many other works uh, that are flourishing in the inequality literature today, can really contribute to this uh, debate. So thank you very much for, for your attention. Thank you, Lucas, for that fantastically clear and, and, and uh, broad-ranging discussion. And now we're going to move on to Rebecca. Do you want to go to you? Oh, should I grab it's up, it? It's up to you, but it might be easier to go. Okay, sure. Yep. Well, hello, everybody. Um, so I guess it's up to me to sort of open uh, the section of, sort of comments uh, on, on uh, Lucas's presentation and report. Uh, so I just first wanted to say a sort of congratulations to Lucas and his team uh, for what I think is a pretty extraordinary, uh, particularly data effort, but also very wide-ranging report uh, that really manages to showcase the sort of breadth of data um, that they've collected over the past few years. And I've sort of dabbled a little bit with the world's uh, inequality database over the past year or so, looking at different trends. And just over that span of time, there's been a massive sort of increase in the number of countries covered. And I've been sort of nudging colleagues and sort of saying, oh, have you seen the latest Brazilian report? <laughs> so there, there's an audience out there for this. Um, um, so I thought I'm going to talk a bit about some sort of quite specific data issues that I, I wanted to sort of raise with you or query some of the, the thinking behind. And then I think some of my colleagues will maybe talk about sort of bigger conceptual, conceptual ideas. Um, but so the first thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, and perhaps challenge a bit, uh, is one of your charts, which I think is quite an important one, looks at uh, the top 10% income share in different regions of the world. And we see this very strong inequality rise in most of the world, and perhaps a sort of flat trend in the Middle East, um, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and uh, Brazil, but at a very high level. Uh, one thing that I thought was a little bit odd about that chart, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that it so combines both country-level uh, analysis of inequality, so within country inequality in the case of, say, Brazil and China, but regional measures of inequality uh, in some of the other cases. So for the Middle East, we're basically comparing inequality across all the people in the Middle East as if the Middle East was one political country, unit, right, one country. And in the Middle East in particular, that inequality is, is quite strongly driven by country differences, right? So we're combining some very rich people in, in the sort of oil-rich Gulf states with relatively poor people in countries like Jordan or sort of non-oil-rich countries, right? 
and so the trends we're seeing there, both the sort of levels then are large more because of the configuration of the Middle Eastern region than, than because of what's happening in the individual countries. Uh, but also the trends there can be driven either by between-country dif- changes or within-country changes. Right? Um, and what that means is that you could have, say, an oil price increase that increases uh, incomes in Saudi Arabia and increases inequality, um, but what it implies in a way politically is that we're almost expecting that, that that kind of inequality rise should be mitigated, right? Uh, that we're expecting uh, some sort of redistribution from sort of oil gains in one country to another country in the Middle East. And I wonder if that's really sort of fair to, to sort of <laughs> make, that, make that assumption. Um, and so maybe sort of averages across countries would have been better and also helped highlight what I think was one of your main points in that section, which was that there's been this kind of diversity of country experience um, and that we want to try and exploit this difference. We want to try and figure out which countries have managed to contain inequality more than others. And just a little bit of a plug then about some of the work we're doing at the International Inequalities Institute. Um, We've been working on a paper where we've looked at inequality trends across uh, developing countries uh, using the admittedly very imperfect household budget survey data. But there we see a real sort of range in trends and actually more countries where inequality is falling than rising. So I think averages could potentially give quite a different uh, story there. The other sort of data question then is around the sort of base for measuring inequality. Uh, and this distinction between pre-tax inequality and post-tax inequality. And somewhere towards the middle of the report, uh, there's some discussion about these two concepts and how they differ. But if I'm understanding it correctly, most of the, most of the charge, and particularly in the summary report, are based on a pre-tax income inequality measure. Um, and I think that's a bit incongruous perhaps with with what you're then recommending. So there's a set of recommendations that, among other things, recommends for more progressive taxation, um, which might have some impact on your pre-tax inequality measure, but it will have probably a bigger impact on your post-tax measure, right? Uh, So in a way, you're proposing things that, if they were carried out and were really successful, wouldn't necessarily be picked up entirely by your main, main inequality trend. And specifically, I think, today, where there's a lot of these proposals being floated that very much focus on fiscal redistribution, um, sort of ideas about taxes on robots, on, about sort of basic universal income, that assume, in a way, that, that maybe we'll, we're facing a world where wealth inequality will continue to be very high, but where post-tax inequality can be, can be sort of managed um, I just wonder sort of, if you have any thoughts on, on which measures we should be using and why and in which contexts and, and sort of how, how they might change the picture. And the last, last little quibble is just on these projections for the future. Um, and so in them you're assuming sort of linear within-country inequality growth. Um, and I just feel like maybe it would have been nice to see a bit more of a nod to the inequality sort of literature there. And particularly, there's a lot of literature that's thought about inequality dynamics, and most of it assumes that inequality will, will sort of take a, a curved, sort of either the sort of famous Kuznets inverted U shape or sort of 
wave-like shape, and that once you start, a country starts reaching an inequality frontier, inequality growth will slow down and potentially even reverse. So at least sort of to think a bit about yeah, what, what are the appropriate ways of, of projecting or modeling the future. Um, so with that, yeah, I think I'll hand over to... Thanks. Thanks, Rebecca. That was fantastic. Um, then now Paul Siegel to make a few comments. Some technical help here. Is a mouse? We need a mouse. Yes. Fall down. Must fall down somewhere. Great. Excuse me. Excuse me. Was it there when you were? I think it fell. It must have fallen out the back. Maybe open a recent thing. Is there a way to no? Is there a way to get up here? Probably not. Here? Unless we do. Uh, there are a couple of key figures I really want to show. Sorry, we just we've lost the mouse Duncan, here. Duncan, do you want to go <laughs> first? Yeah. Okay, maybe you could. Well, you've not been PowerPoint, okay. Well, yeah, but, but it'll be much more interesting to watch you look at the house. Whatever I'm going to say. Um, all right. Good try to stop that. Ah, okay. Have you got it? Okay, sorry about that. Uh, little... <clears throat> Um, okay, so um, this, of course, is fantastic work produced by the World Inequality Lab. They're, they're leading the world on the study of uh, inequalities. And for someone like me who's been working on inequality for quite a long time, it's fantastic to have this huge new source of data, loads more analysis, and just a, an explosion in the field, which is, which is tremendous. Um, so uh, there are lots of methodological points that one could talk about. And a couple of weeks ago, we had a really nice workshop in Paris a lot of people came together and talked about all these things. So I got all that stuff off my chest then, so I'm not going to bother you with it now. Um, uh, I will just say these are some estimates of global inequality that I've done with my colleague Sudhir Anand, which is a different methodology. It's imperfect in different ways from, from uh, their estimates. But we kind of find something pretty similar um, in the sense of uh, rising inequality up until the sort of mid-2000s and then declining since then. And one of the things that... Um, has always struck me in the presentations of the World Inequality Report, which was referred to by Rebecca, is that they have this, they tend to think of this, the trend from 1980 to the present. And of course, well, it's true, inequality has gone up a lot um, over that time, globally and in, in, in most countries. But it is worth noting and thinking about the fact that um, 
uh, that it seems to have declined uh, in more recent years. We don't really know why. There are a bunch of individual country studies looking at uh, uh, particular cases, but um, there seems to be, there might be a global story about this. Okay? So interestingly, it's not just global inequality, so these are the income shares of the, of the top 1% and 0.1% at the global level, but also within countries, uh, inequality seems to have started to decline around the same time. And so I've got just time trends. The upward straight line is the time trend over the whole period. The dotted line is a very slightly negative time trend going from 2005 to the present, and this is using the, the top income data um, uh, that these guys put together. But you find something similar if you use household surveys as well. Um, so that's a big story, uh, something that, that we all really want to, want to get our teeth into. The main thing I want to talk about, though, is, um, is, is kind of complementary. It's almost, it's almost normative, uh, uh, complementary to, to the report, um, which is kind of thinking a little bit about why all this matters. So I assume you guys think inequality matters because that's why you're here, but a lot of people don't think inequality matters, okay, including a lot of economists, including some Nobel Prize-winning economists like uh, Professor Robert Lucas, who made some famous comments about the study of inequality. He wrote, of the tendencies that are harmful to sound economics, the most seductive and, in my opinion, the most poisonous is to focus on questions of distribution. The potential for improving the lives of poor people by finding different ways of distributing current production is nothing compared to the apparently limitless potential of increasing production. Okay? And elsewhere, he talking about the, the importance of growth for human welfare. The consequences for human welfare involved in questions like different GDP growth rates are simply staggering. Once one starts to think about them, it is hard to think about anything else. So, I mean, does inequality really matter that much, right? Can, should we just be thinking about GDP growth? Is that the main thing that determines human welfare, which is what, in a sense, we're all kind of trying to get at? Here's a, uh, I'm going to give two examples. I said that inequality has been started to decline recently in most countries of the world, but there are a couple of countries, well, there are a number where it hasn't. I'm going to show exa- two examples where it hasn't declined recently. One, of course, is the famous case of the United States. Lots of research done there. This is a pretty well-known graph showing hourly compensation of, of workers, so that's, that's uh, non-supervisory workers and production workers, so that's excluding kind of very highly paid professionals. Their hourly compensation relative to their productivity, and as is pretty well known by now, those things ran together pretty smoothly until the early 1970s, and then they radically diverged. So productivity continued to increase, but those regular workers just stopped seeing any wage gain virtually. Okay? So since uh, 1972, hourly pay grew 12%, while productivity grew 88%. Now, um, the next step, which in a sense is incredibly obvious, but is very rarely taken uh, in, in, in studies of inequality, is to point out, well, okay, what that means is that if inequality had remained constant since 1972, wages would be 68% higher. Okay? So the median worker in, in the U.S. would be 68% richer if uh, inequality hadn't gone up. Now, these, this is from work on Mexico that I've done with, with two co-authors, Ingrid Blainath and Emilcar Chalou. Um, this shows the similar graph over a much longer period for Mexico. We put together uh, kind of typical wages uh, from 1800 to the present using all sorts of historical sources, and we compared it with um, GDP per worker over time. And you can see... The, the, the two are pretty static for most of the 19th century, and then the divergence there kind of starts actually around 1900. Okay? And then there's a middle period in, in the, of the 20th century from around 19... Uh, after the Second World War to, to the mid-1970s when, um, 
wages were growing with GDP, but then again, you see the big division, productivity slows down, but, doesn't, uh, uh, but then kind of recovers, whereas wages crash and never recover. Okay? So again, let's take the next step and say, well, what does that actually mean? What's the implication of that for the, for the wages of, of the median uh, or the typical Mexican worker? Well, the typical Mexican worker, the median wage is 160 pounds a month. That's what they take home, 160 pounds a month, right? It's a relatively poor country. Um, that's not going to lift a family above the poverty line. So half of the population of Mexico are below their national poverty line, which is a pretty basic poverty line. Um, if inequality had remained constant since the 1970s, instead of 160 pounds, it would be 390 pounds. Okay, per month, right? More than doubling. And by the way, it was also mentioned by Lucas, and again, something very important to remember is that no high inequality does not help a country to get rich. So there's no evidence at all that um, if those two countries, Mexico and the US, had found some way to avoid inequality declining, it would have necessarily implied lower GDP growth. Okay? So what this graph shows very simply uh, is, is GDP per capita on the horizontal axis and the Gini coefficient on the vertical axis. And as you can see, there's a negative correlation. That means richer countries have lower inequality. Now, I'm not going to argue that there's, a causal, there's an, a causal relationship there, that one causes the other. But what this graph shows is it's very hard to argue that high inequality is good for growth. Okay? That should imply the opposite the opposite slope. Now, people have tried to make that argument with all sorts of statistical manipulations, but you know, we don't have to buy it. It's just not plausible. Okay? So what this means is that uh, efforts to reduce inequality, um, there's no reason at all to think they're going to have a negative effect on growth. And so we really do have a, so have a choice as societies as to what uh, level of inequality we want. There's all sorts of policies we can, we can uh, choose that will have a, a big impact. And that distribution, how we distribute that income, will not necessarily, there's no reason to think that's going to have a particular effect on the amount of uh, income there is to distribute. Okay? So, to summarize, inequality represents a huge cost for the majority. Right? Now, this is kind of the most obvious reason why people should care about inequality, but actually it gets pretty little uh, traction in, in debates. Right? It's, it's an obvious step that people often don't take. So, the examples I showed, rising inequality since the 1970s has cost the median U.S. worker 40% of their income. So look, I'm looking at it from the other direction. Suppose first that inequality had stayed constant, well, their incomes today are 40% lower than they would have been if inequality had stayed constant. And in Mexico, it's even more extreme. In Mexico, rising inequality since the 1970s has cost the median Mexican worker 60% of their income. Okay? They have less than half of what they would have had if inequality had stayed constant. Now, a line I, I, I often say, this also implies that inequality represents a wasted opportunity for poverty reduction. Okay? The, if the money is going to the top, uh, it doesn't mean they're just generating new income and new production that otherwise wouldn't be there. It means everyone else isn't getting that income and that production. Okay? So contrary to Robert Lucas, how current production is distributed matters a lot. And that's why this work matters a lot, and that's why I think it's so fantastic that we have all this uh, new data and new analysis being brought to us by Lucas and his colleagues. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Now, now on to Duncan Green for his uh, reflections. Okay, so, so I'm the sort of Neanderthal here because I can't even do Excel, right? So, so um, I'm not going to try and talk about data and data sets and quality of data and all the rest of it. I work split between LSE and Oxfam, 
And at Oxfam, I'm pretty sure there will be teams of people trawling through this because it's a goldmine for the work we're doing on influencing around inequality, both at global level and national level. So we do those flashy statistics that you know, the eight richest men in the world have the same wealth as the bottom 3.6 billion every Davos, every January. But we also do lots of stuff at national level, and this is fantastic because we'll, there'll be lots of new material here. So I'm going to take quite an instrumental view of the report. Um, two of the things I really liked about it is this quite, uh, I think, innovative try- attempt to link macro debates about things like private-public with the inequality debates, and we'll certainly be picking that up, I think. Really interesting. And great that it's spread to developing countries, but keep going. As a Latin Americanist, you know, Brazil really doesn't stand for Latin America, and we, we want all the other countries in there as well. Um, and I sort of see the report as an essential first step. You said, Lucas, um, yeah, without the data, we don't know what to do. Okay, so we've got the data. Now what? And this takes me back to... Um, a trip to Tanzania a few years ago where a really brilliant NGO called Twaweza had had an enormous program of getting information to people's hands about how bad the education system was in Tanzania. And their pro- project, their program was based on the idea if you get people the data, they will take action. And then they'd done all these very rigorous RCTs and all sorts of other things and found that all this data had achieved absolutely nothing. No one had taken action because they had new data about the state of education. And so when I see this, and I was talking to the World Bank this afternoon about their new human capital index and all this data, I'm just thinking, well, okay, in what situations will that data lead to political action? In that, in that situation, what, what is needed to make the data actually achieve a change in the real world? And the solutions you offer are, are, are kind of classic assume a tin opener solutions. You know, look, we need more spending on education. Yeah, great. We need public investment. Great. We need you know, registration of companies. Yes, fine. When and why and how is that going to happen is somebody else's business. And, and the trouble is it's nobody else's business. There's lots and lots of reports with more data, very little on how you actually achieve change using this data. So I think there's a real imbalance there. Um, I'll finish on one thing, which is you know, one of the... One of the <clears throat> nice things, uh, the striking things of the many striking things in Piketty's book and in Walter Scheidel's book The Great Leveller, was this very sort of seductive idea that war is the only thing that really tackles inequality that everything else is kind of fairly second order compared to the giant destruction of fixed capital which leads to 50 years and redistribution and lots of other good things Um, and one of the more depressing readings of Piketty and Scheidel is unless we have a war, we can't get to that level of redistribution. I don't think you've answered that by just saying, if we had these nice policies, we can do it. Um, we, there isn't a we there. You know, the, the, the moment, from the t- point of view of political science, we haven't found a, a substitute for war. War is no longer an, an option as a great leveller. Well, it would be a great leveller, but the wrong kind. Um, so... We have to actually go for Clausewitz with politics being war by other means. And unless we get into a serious discussion about the kind of politics that would deliver these great policies, the data is not going to do the job. Sorry to end on a down note, but I just wanted to say that. Answer now? Yeah. Yeah. So Lucas will respond, and then we'll throw it up to the floor for the last 15 minutes. Yep. Thank, thank you very much for the great, uh, great comments uh, to the three of you. So let me, um, yeah, let me per- perhaps start uh, with the end. Basically, why you know uh, 
can what can we really wait from uh, from from this data and, and from this work? And basically, you know, is there a theory of change uh, behind the production of these numbers? And if yes, what theory of change is it? And what is the role of inequality researchers in that? Basically, uh, should inequality researchers provide? Uh, a very detailed program of how to change society. I mean, this is a big, this is a big question. Uh, clearly, so far, uh, our main added value, at least this, this group, this team, has been the production uh, of these uh, historical inequality series because history can be a very good model for what is happening in, in, in the future. And replacing these, these, uh, the, these debates in, 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 the, in the broader historical context can really, uh, can really help, at least we believe, uh, public debates and also um, can really help institutions like Oxfam to, to, to change uh, what some have called the common sense or to change uh, beliefs, uh, ideologies around, around inequality. And I, th I really think that just one thing, the, the idea of the trickle-down, for instance, is still very uh, present in public debates or in a country like France, that you really need high growth at the top in order to see some uh, growth at the bottom. Uh, you also see a similar justification of tax policies in the U.S. Over the past six uh, months, you've seen two fairly broadly similar uh, fiscal reform packages, both sides of the Atlantic, uh, that were presented by seemingly extremely different um, uh, extremely different uh, politicians. Uh, you know, Trump on one side, Macron on the other. You know, um, if, if you look at them from far away, they have nothing in common. If you look at their fiscal policies, they're almost exactly the same in terms of the reduction of the corporate tax rate, in terms of the reduction of the income tax rate, and in terms of the scrapping of um, the, 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 the uh, wealth taxation. And behind that is more or less the same justification. Basically, if... Uh, you tax uh, the rich too much, there will be no growth uh, at the bottom, you will not be able to create jobs, and so on and so forth. And I think at least one thing behind this data is that it can, it can help to replace these arguments in a broader perspective, and it can help us realize, understand that, no, this is not true, that uh, you need actually to have uh, derogative tax rates on the very top in order to have growth at the bottom. This is really not what we see in different countries since the 1980s. So at least this, it can help for that. Then for theories of change and for practical policy solutions, the problem is that there's no silver bullet. And we are working country by country. I have colleagues working on uh, um, allocation, how to allocate uh, uh, investments in education in France. Emmanuel says, one of the co-authors of, of this report, works on education and inequality in the, U in the U.S. and tries to pinpoint toward you know, public colleges, for instance, that do a, that do a great job at reducing uh, educational inequality. But this is really country by country analysis. And, and there cannot be any kind of broad macro uh, silver bullet here. Uh, a final point on, on the, the importance of numbers of country comparisons, because I think country comparisons have all their limitations but can also be useful, at least when you compare how, com how countries fare uh, one, uh, one compared to the other in terms of inequality. If you look at the PISA 
um, uh, the, the PISA uh, rankings, the OECD uh, educational rankings. Uh, basically, Germany, the Germans, completely reviewed their educational program because uh, at some point of time in the 2000s, they realized that they performed really badly on education rankings in the PISA ranking. And, and, and because they didn't want to appear as the country at the, at the bottom of the list, they completely revisited the program in order to perform uh, better. So you see here the impact that, uh, that, uh, that rankings can have on, on the concrete policy implemented by different countries. So that's one point. Another point uh, related to pre-tax, post-tax, which was, which was raised uh, before uh, by, by Rebecca. Um, basically, yes, at the moment, we do not have post-tax estimates uh, for a lot of countries. In the report, essentially, uh, we have this discussion for the U.S. But the thing is, when we move on towards more discussion, more data on the post-tax, this is likely to just reinforce the general conclusions that, that we had in the, in the report, in particular related to this divergence between Europe and U.S., because there's a much higher reduction of tax progressivity in the U.S. than in many uh, European countries. So this is likely to reinforce actually the divergence that, that we observe, and we have new results coming very soon in the database uh, for France, which, which confirm this, uh, this general finding, that in fact the divergence between Europe and U.S. is even higher if you look at post-tax uh, inequality. That being said, when we talk about pre-tax, in, our, in, in everything that I've shown here, it's it's actually before personal income and wealth tax, but after uh, uh, payment and receipts for unemployment insurance and pensions. So we actually do include most of cash redistribution in these series. So it's not completely pre-tax. Uh, so that was a, a second point. Uh, another point, yes, we agree, we need to look at all these countries in Latin America, in Africa, as, as you've been uh, discussing and, and calling for. The thing is, again, I'm here moving back to the beginning of the presentation, so far we only had survey data to assess that. Survey data can be extremely interesting to look at growth rates of the bottom 40% of the population, for instance. But if you want to compare these growth rates to what is happening to the average, well, you need, you need data on the top. And surveys do not do this properly. And you have a, a big gap, big discrepancy between growth rates in surveys and growth rates from national accounts, GDP growth, basically, the numbers that we hear in the news. So in many countries, people just don't understand why surveys say uh, a certain number, and in fact, uh, they hear other numbers in the news. So this is really what we try to do, to reconnect, again, the micro and the macro. And, and this, this takes time. We're doing it uh, on African countries at the moment. Asian countries, we're doing it on Latin American countries, but again, uh, this... Uh, this in order to do it properly, this uh, takes time. I couldn't agree more with uh, what you said, Paul, that uh, inequality is actually a huge cost for everybody. Uh, I like uh, very, very much this framing. One, one of your points was really on the uh, where should we start to look at the evolution of global inequality? Should we start in 1980? Shouldn't we look more at what is happening from uh, since uh, the, the, the global financial crisis? Again, yes, uh, I agree that 1980 is not the only date that we should look at, 
and in the uh, report we also discuss other points in the uh, annexes, appendices to the report. You can see many of the similar gr graphs that I presented here, the elephant curve, how it is modified if you start in 1990, in 2000. So again, all of this can be, uh, can be found online. That being said, 1980 is an interesting point because it is a point of very uh, radical shifts in, in policy, opening uh, in, the, in the emerging world, uh, strong transformations in, in the Western world, in the USA. So it, it, has, uh, it has a meaning to start uh, in 1980 and, and not, necess not, not necessarily since 2007 because the financial crisis may have had a lot of impacts on our global inequality trend, which are really related to the financial crisis. And basically, what we found uh, is that the very low growth decade in Europe that is witnessed since, uh, the, uh, since 2007 has had a, a large impact, actually, on the reduction of global inequality. So this is not because there's less inequality in the emerging world or because the emerging world is growing faster, but this is also because... Uh, there has been a stagnation of income at, uh, at the level of, uh, of Europe. This is not the only reason, but it's part of the reason. So, so starting 2007 is also, uh, also leads to, 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 to several, several, several issues. So, yeah, I will stop here. And, yeah. So I think we have time for one round of questions. Um, so uh, I can take three or four. Please just say briefly who you are before we talk. And you, I think you were first. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much. Titus Alexander, Democracy Matters. It was very stimulating to have the, all that information, and it's great to see that it is. But I'd like to follow Duncan's point, because since 1980, for example, with a huge growth in business studies and people learning how to do practical business, shouldn't we be teaching practical politics so people could learn how to create greater inequality and address some of the issues raised by your, um, this kind of issue so people can learn how to influence effectively? Let's get a few questions and then come around again. Um, who's next? Yeah, in the middle there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. James Butzel from the International Development Department. James Putzel from the International Development Department at the school. Um, just to reinforce what Paul brought up, I think 1980 really is a very, from what you said yourself, a very important point because your point about the trends, if they had continued in terms of trends in inequality without the reversals of neo neoliberal policies in 1980, people would be, inequality be much less and wages and incomes would be much, much greater. So the biggest, the first big lesson is what was done to the international distribution of income from that point on. Yeah. But then I have a question. So it was quite interesting. I know that it's very imperfect, the measures of wealth inequality. Um, so, but it was interesting in your chart that it showed in China, for the last 10 years, there's been a leveling out of wealth inequality. So I, I'm wondering what, what you've reflected on about that. And, and where are you going, or where, where, where's the network going in terms of trying to improve this very imperfect capturing of wealth inequality. Thank you. I'll give us some diversity now amongst the questioners. Um, okay, the front here. Yeah. Um, hi. Uh, thank you for your... I, I really like your presentation, and I think your report is, um, brings a lot of important information. Um, I just had a quick question uh, just 
Considering the historical differences between countries around the world, resulting in different either extractive or um, more progressive type of institutions, political and economically speaking, uh, what is the best way to tackle uh, inequality in different parts of the world, considering the differences between their institutions? Thank you. So I think if, if you want to answer now, Lucas, we've got time for another round of questions. Yeah. Okay, so, so very quickly, uh, I think there's a professor of, of practice of uh, inequality reduction here, so this really answers your, your question. It exists. Uh, but, but again, you know, on, on this point, I, th- I think it's, you know, it's, not, uh, it's also about what, what is everybody, everybody in this room are going to do when we go out of the room to actually tackle this issue. I mean, we, we also believe in democracy and in the power of everybody to, to do something. So there's, there's indeed a vote, but there are many different, uh, man, many different channels through which uh, action can, can be taken. And, and waiting for inequality researchers to actually do all the job is, is, is clearly um, not an option. We can do a lot, and perhaps a lot more. More than what we do today, but it's it's really a collective uh, a collective task, I, I guess. Uh, the second point, uh, which was, what are we going to do with uh, with wealth? Well, uh, there's a lot of investments uh, in in building. Uh, what is missing at the moment is actually we don't even know the total wealth values for many countries. So first, we need to build that. Uh, so this is uh, being uh, carried out, and then we distribute it, and this is also uh, a very strong, important uh, uh, direction that, that we're taking. For, for China, uh, there, there is indeed uh, potentially the realization you know, by the Chinese authorities that the strong, huge rise of wealth and income inequality right after the liberalization, the first stage of the liberalization process, was not sustainable. So, so, so leading to, to different types of policies to limit uh, actually uh, the, uh, the unequal impact of li- uh, privatization policies. The third question, again, uh, on what to do in different parts of the world, there is no silver bullet, but take emerging countries, for instance. In, in the report, we stress that in countries with very high inequality levels like Brazil, South Africa, uh, Russia, uh, you don't even have an inheritance tax. And so this can be an interesting debate that, that should uh, be opened up in these, in these uh, countries uh, in order to actually uh, you know, have an impact on, on the wealth distribution without waiting for wars uh, to, to happen. But again, if we look at the reduction of wealth inequality in the UK, well, it's not wars that did most of, of the reduction of wealth inequality. A big chunk of the reduction of wealth inequality happens after 1945, so, so, so this is also one way to, to react to, to what Duncan uh, was saying before. It's also a lot to do with, with policy, and we shouldn't be pessimistic about, uh, too, too pessimistic about, about all this. I'll just kind of say quickly in response to the question about you know, what we do about it. The LSE, International Inequalities Institute, which I'm director, runs the Atlantic Fellows Programme, which is, you know, we're trying to develop a new cohort of people committed to actually changing things as well as studying them. So follow, follow us and talk to us. Um, one final round of questions. Uh, actually, Luna at the front here, then over to you. Yep. Thank you for your presentation. Um, very quickly, two questions, really. One is, how do you see um, your projections for growth in the context of uh, the planet ecological limitations? And the second one would be Again, I'm sorry, I'm an anthropologist, not an economist, so I hope I'm framing this well, but you seem to 
say that your projections are based on strong growth in developed countries. How would they look like in the context of low growth or indeed degrowth? Yes, with the, with, the, with the brown jacket. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very quick, Bernard Casey from Frankfurt in Germany. Um, you talked about the importance of using tax data rather than survey data because this gave you something new. But um, is there not um, an equal problem of who is actually paying tax at high levels and does tax evasion present an equally great problem to what is not answered in surveys? And I'm just keen to get one of our athletic fellows in the back there. Um, the back, yep. Thank you very much for your extremely interesting presentation. Um, Quick question around skills bias technological change. There's been some discussion about whether um, technological advance is is skills complementary and if this is driving some income inequalities. Um, Both Milanovic and Atkinson seem to have some policy recommendations around this, and I was wondering if your team's thinking is heading towards any of this pre-distribution rather than redistribution. Okay, so sorry for those of you who haven't had time to speak, but I'm just aware of the time. So why don't you go around the panel quickly? Um, Perhaps go this way around? Back over to anything? I have one thing to say, um, uh, partly in response to, to Duncan's comment. So um, I think Walter Scheidel is wrong historically. Uh, I don't think it only takes wars or it has to take wars or massive crises to, uh, to reduce inequality. So in the mid-20th century, in the research I've done, we find that, as I showed in Mexico, inequality went down in the post-World War II period, despite Mexico not being a belligerent in World War II. And possibly, we don't know, but it looks like it might have happened in Argentina as well from the, the limited data we have. Um, And more recently, uh, as you know, there's been very substantial inequality declines in a bunch of Latin American countries uh, without any kind of, without any crises necessarily beforehand. Um, So Brazil, inequality went down on some measures at least, though it's a bit controversial, you know, exactly what happened. Uh, um, uh, Ecuador, Argentina, uh, Bolivia had massive declines in inequality. They didn't have wars. They did end up with pretty nasty social conflict. So uh, President Dilma got impeached and replaced by a demonstrably more corrupt president in Brazil because elites fought back against it. Same in Argentina, very nasty sort of semi-legal political fighting uh, from the, the elites hitting back at the party and the politicians who were doing the redistributing. So uh, large amounts of progressive redistribution I think, are possible um, through, as it were, regular politics. It's not pretty. It gets nasty, uh, but it has happened. Yeah, picking up on, on the example of, of Brazil, we, we indeed find a strong growth of, uh, of the incomes of the bottom, 40%, 50% in Brazil. But because of the lack of, uh, of reforms in terms of fiscal policy, land reform, actually the, the top 1% performed pretty well in Brazil. So the the middle class ended up paying a, a large part of, of the redistributive uh, uh, policies that, that were found in Brazil. And this can also contribute to the backlash uh, that, that is currently being uh, observed in this, countries because, in this country because we don't see a decline in the top 1% share in Brazil over the period. This connects to the, the question on tax data. 
the, the, the big difference between tax and survey data is, is mostly that, you know, if you don't report your tax uh, data properly, which is the case, there is evasion, as you know, and this is growing in most countries, at least uh, there's the threat of a sanction. There is absolutely no threat at all of any sanction whatsoever when you answer a survey. That being said, we're also working with Gabriel Zuckman on estimates of tax evasions across different countries. And as soon as we have this information, we have it for some countries, we re-include it in, in, in these uh, estimates of ta tax data. That is, we correct uh, some of the tax data with uh, the knowledge of uh, the tax evasions we, we have. So that was uh, one point. On growth projections... Uh, the growth uh, estimates we have for developed countries are relatively low. They are relatively high for uh, the developing world. Now, uh, we have not done uh, uh, projections in the case of degrowth, but uh, degrowth in the rich world would uh, clearly um, increase the rates uh, of uh, – would, would, would basically contribute to decrease global uh, inequality. Uh, of course, all these issues must be uh, thought uh, in the context of physical uh, limitations to, to the planet. And this is also uh, one of, of my area of, of personal uh, work. And, you know, when you see the elephant curve, this is a good news. At least the bottom part is a good news for the reduction of global inequality. But if you do the same curve for carbon emissions, which is some work that we've done uh, with uh, Thomas uh, Piketty, you see a similar curve in terms of carbon emissions. And this is a bad news for the planet, basically. The, 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 the body of the elephant is a very bad news for the planet. Now, that being said, there are many interesting cases where you can combine social policy with environmental policies. Just one example. The Indonesian case, for instance, where Indonesia, the uh, government of in Indonesia used to spend a lot of money in uh, subsidizing fossil fuels, so basically, basically paying to destroy the, the, the planet. And actually, they, they decided to remove these fossil fuels, but this had uh, potentially uh, uh, strong consequences on social unrest because a lot of people were benefiting from, from these fossil fuels. So what the Indonesian government uh, did is that it used this, this money to actually fund a social uh, uh, health security system, which is a universal social uh, health security system, one of the largest in the world, and which is actually based and, uh, on this combination uh, or synergy that you can find between some ecological objective and a social objective. Uh, so that was uh, one point. Then uh, related to uh, skill bias, technical change, or more globally, pre-distribution versus redistribution, Perhaps I will conclude on that. Really, the, the message we have here is that we should not oppose uh, pre-distribution, redistribution. If you want to think about pre-distribution tomorrow, you need to think about you know, inequality of outcomes today. You need to combine pre-distribution and redistribution. Basically, you need uh, progressive tax policies in order to, uh, to have uh, ambitious pre-distribution uh, uh, pre policies in, in our sense. I mean, this is a very uh, broad topic, and, and we cannot discuss this uh, here, but there, there are uh, these kind of uh, discussions also in, in the report. Okay, thank you. I'll stop there. Can I thank Lucas and the panel? It's been a very it's been a terrific uh, debate, and we learned a lot. And can I just say that I think that the book will be available outside for anyone who wants to... Take a bite. I'm not sure if you want to sign it, Lucas. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not really. <laughs>
I, I couldn't I couldn't sign I couldn't imitate the signatures of uh, of all the all the, all the writers. So. <laughs> so can I can I thank again all the panel? I thank you for coming.